this morning. We're going to continue in our study of Romans. Freshman year, in required English class, I met a guy named Sean from Midland, Texas, who was part of the Corps of Cadets at Texas A&M. What was interesting about Sean was he was DNC, which means drill and ceremony. There was no contract in it for him. There was no future in the U.S. Army. He was just choosing to do this. That means he got up at 6 o'clock in the morning for inspection. His brass had to be shined. They went in and they had to bounce a quarter on his bed. When he got home from class, he had to go out running with his company. And when he saw an upperclassman, he had to get in step with them and introduce himself in a certain set way. And he had to know all this inane information about Texas A&M, like who was the fourth president. And if he didn't know, he had to do a class set of 82 push-ups. He did this willingly for no benefit from my perspective. So my question to him was, Sean, why? Why are you doing this? Oh, he said, it's fun, it's a game, and his daddy had done it, and his grandpa had done it, and I thought, yeah, I don't get it. But if you want to do it, more power to you. You know, some people, when we talk about putting ourselves under God's authority and the spirit, God's, the authority of God's spirit, that's the same question I asked of Sean. Why? Why would you do that? Well, I think there's real good reason why. We should put ourselves under God's authority. And I want to talk about that this morning. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to Romans chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to go through verse 17. And we're going to wrestle with that question. Why should we put ourselves under the authority of God's Spirit? Quick overview where we've been. Paul talked about the beauty of the gospel. He's not ashamed of it. It's the power to reconnect people with God. The religious, the non-religious. And, and then as he moved through Romans, he's talked about our relationship with God. And in chapter 7, he wrote of his experience of being frustrated. Though he had been set free theologically and spiritually, experientially, he wasn't experiencing that. In fact, he was experiencing frustration. And in, in the end, he, he, he cried out in chapter 7, verse 24, Wretched man, who will set me free? In verse 25, he, he said, Thanks be to God. In Christ Jesus who set me free. And, and so that's where we pick it up. And, and Paul is still uh, processing this, this freedom we have. And he says in chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore, there's the connector with chapter 7. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're free from condemnation from our sin. Yeah, we're imperfect. But we're not condemned. Because of our righteous standing in Jesus. But in, starting in verse 2, he talks about the, this, this battle that we have and that though we've been set free from sin, we're, we're still drawn to it. And he wants to remind us that we've been set free from the tyranny of living for self. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. See, before coming to Jesus, no person had any other choice but to live for themselves and to live in sin, which is rebellion to God, and the consequences of that were relationally, experientially, and eternally death. That was the trajectory. That was the choice we had. And Paul said, in Christ, we've been set free from that. If you will, think about uh, a seasonal allergy, which I have. When the uh, Trees bud. <laughs> I, 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 I'm under the tyranny of those pollens. 
until I take some over-the-counter uh, medication. And then that sets me free from the, the feeling of those things. And, and so, uh, we're under the tyranny of self and sin until Jesus comes along and he talks a little bit more about that liberation process in verses three and four. He said, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. So Paul said, hey, you know, God gave us his law and in our flesh, everything we can do apart from God, it, we couldn't meet the standard. It, in fact, that law caused us to sin all the more. So what we couldn't do, God did. How? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He took on the flesh we had, but he chose not to sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. And in, in that there's a word play in saying in, in condemning sin, Jesus saved us from the condemnation of sin. So, verse four, that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, the requirement of the law was a standard of perfection and it laid it out. This is what you got to do. And, and what, we fact, what we found out is that we couldn't do it. In fact, it caused us to go the other way and to be even less perfect. Well, that perfection was mad in Christ Jesus because we have righteous standing in him. In the perfection he lived, God sees us in that light. And so in Jesus, we met the standard of that law. Here's the deal. Uh, anytime we're caught in addiction, maybe it's food, maybe it's sugar, maybe it's porn, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's shopping, maybe it's work, whatever it is. The, the irony is of that which we think is giving us life is actually killing us. And, and we need some intervention to break that and to show us that there's life other places. And, and that's what sin was doing. It was what we wanted and we thought it was giving us life, but in reality it was killing us. One of the things I love to see is when somebody has been set free from alcohol, sometimes they will post on Facebook or they will put out as this many days sober, this many days free. We're like those people. This many days, this many years free from the power of sin. That's worth celebrating. Now, you need to know this life is not automatic. It's not given. It takes some intentionality on our part. And Paul talks about that in verses 5 through 8. It says, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. Now remember the flesh is everything we can do apart from God. And we think I'm on my own, I can do what I'm, my mind is set on things of the flesh. Now in opposition, Paul says, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit, we're, we're setting our mind then not on our own authority, but, but on the, the authority of God's spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Here's why. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. Toward God, The mind in the flesh is I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to call my own shots. That, that's hostility toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So this question comes along, who has authority? Do I have authority in my life or does God and his spirit have authority in my life? See, if we're going to live the life Jesus has for us, we're going to have to submit willingly to this authority. And sometimes it gets a little personal. Sometimes the spirit of God gets in our business. Like, well, Andy, like what? 
So at the end of the eighth grade year, my family moves from suburban Detroit to suburban Chicago. I lived there grades one through eight, and I was kind of considered a teacher's pet and picked on by kids in my class. But I thought this move was a chance to remake myself, and I had swum age group. And so when we moved, we went up to the high school pool and met the coach, and I looked up at the, the freshman record board, and I thought, you know what? I've got that record. <laughs> I had a faster time in the eighth grade. So it's just a matter of getting an official recording in, in November when the season starts, and I'll have that record. Well, that summer, I, I, I trained with the varsity swimmers, and, and <laughs> they were a sarcastic, biting bunch. And I thought, I, I can remake myself. I can, I can learn in this. And then the beginning of my freshman year, I, I went out for the football team, and I was a starter on the A team. And, and so I became this jock with this honed image, with this sarcastic bet. And then sure enough, I, I set that record, and about two weeks later, every freshman PE class had a unit in swimming. So every freshman saw my name up there. I mean, I was cool. And I was sharp, and I was witty, and no one was going to get the best of me. See, that was, that was my life. That was my identity. I was the caustic, impervious jock. So I carried that all through high school, and I go off to college in that same way. And my freshman year, I meet Christ. And somewhere in my sophomore or junior year, some people start talking to me about my sarcasm. And they say, you know, that's not fitting with someone who follows God. Oh, come on, man, you're just jealous because you're not as funny as I am. Then they had the audacity to quote me Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it may give, give grace to those who hear. I, I still got it memorized because it got quoted to me so many times. And let me just start with the first phrase. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. See, they were getting in my business. God, through them, was getting in my business because this was my life and my identity. Remember, I honed this image as a freshman in high school. And now they're telling me it doesn't fit. I got to tell you, I resisted that for about two, maybe three years until I was a graduate student at A&M. And the campus director had let me do some teaching Oh, in some small areas from, from the Word of God. He said, you know, Andy, it's interesting. You have a, a gift of encouraging people from the Word of God, but people are having trouble figuring you out because in one sense, you encourage them, then when you get them face-to-face, -face, you cut them down. So which is it? I almost walked from that relationship. It, it cut, so, but he was right. I had to repent. I had to quit living life, finding my identity, living in my own authority, and submit to the clear direction of the word of God. See, when it comes to living in the spirit, God's going to get in your business. He's going to get in your priorities. He's going to get my priorities. And he's going to say, this needs to change. We want to experience the fullness of God. We need to submit. And sometimes that's not easy. Well, Paul turns to his readers in verse, verses 9 through 11 and said, you, you guys are in the Spirit. You've made that choice. Here's what he says. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit dwells in you. For any, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of 
righteousness. But the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he does. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, man, it is work in us. And it's convicting and it's molding and it's changing us that we might experience fullness of life from now into eternity. See, we, we live in a culture that resists authority. And the question we have is the same question I had for Sean. Why? Why would you put yourself under this authority? But I'd suggest to you that many of the people that are successful are successful exactly for that reason. They have chosen to put themselves under authority. Hey, when I worked at the University of Northern Colorado, they had the School of Music there. And there were some accomplished musicians. But you know how much they practiced? Four to six hours a day. Why? Because some professor told them that's what they needed to do. They put themselves under that professor's authority that they might be excellent in what they do. I could make the same argument with an actor or an actress. I could make the same argument with an athlete. They willingly put themselves under authority that they might reach their pinnacle. Well, the, the principle holds with God. We choose to give up our rights and we submit to God and his authority. <laughs> and the irony, the paradox is when we do that, we experience a freedom we wouldn't otherwise have. We experience a freedom we never would experience. Paul speaks about that in verse 12 and verse 13. He says, so then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh. And that, that's where we've been. Our own passions, our own desires, they've controlled us. We're, not on, we're under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. If by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body you will live. Paul's saying you've been set free from the flesh. Why do you keep paying? So you got a car payment, okay? You got a car payment. I don't know, it's 300 bucks a month. It's 400 bucks a month. This is very hypothetical. And man, it stretches your budget. And I come along one Christmas, I say, tell you what, I'm gonna pay off your car. Man, thanks, thanks. You know what would be stupid, be foolish, if you kept making that car payment, hey, I've already paid it off. Well, I'm just used to doing it. Why would you do that? That's Paul's point. You've been set free from making this payment to the flesh. Stop doing it. It's killing you. Like the car payment's busting your budget, this is busting your life. See, we started wrestling this, with this question. Why? In this culture that resists authority, why would we willingly put ourselves under the authority of God's Spirit? Here's the deal. Only God's Spirit can set us free from the tyranny of a self-directed life. I'm choosing my words intentionally. Only God's Spirit can set us free from the tyranny of a self-directed life. At the end of World War II, the United States enacted the Marshall Plan, which was given to help rebuild countries that had been destroyed. 
in the first four years of the Marshall Plan, West Germany received $1.4 billion. That'd be a lot of money today, but that was a whole lot of money back then. But you know what West Germany had to do first to receive those resources, that influx of money? They had to surrender. God's got fullness of life for you and for me, but it is predicated on us surrendering. If we're going to live in the flesh apart from him, we will not experience all he has for us. And that experience goes beyond stuff and things to a relationship. Verses 14 and 15, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Adoption is where a parent chooses a child. God has chosen you. Before Jesus, you were a slave. You had every reason to be afraid about the presence of God. But then it's changed because of Jesus. And, and this term, Abba, is a, is a cry of intimacy. Daddy, it's, it's one who's close. But let me remind you, let's not separate this verse from the context. Uh, the degree to which we have that experience is the degree to which we're living in the Spirit. It's the degree to which we are submitting to the authority of God's Spirit. As I mentioned, that gets in our business. This lack week or 10 days, it's been a, been a rough week or 10 days in our country. We've been torn apart by racial tension started by a case of police brutality in Minnesota and it's made its way down here to our city. Who would have thought? You know, it's, it's an issue that's plagued our country forever and there's a place for legislation and there's a place for peaceful protest to give voice but I'm convinced and, and I hope I'm not simplistic or naive in this, but until you change a person's heart, legislation and protests can only go so far. If a person is determined to hate, what do we do? The one who changes hearts is God through Jesus Christ. And he is at work today in our world, and he has chosen to work through this body called the church. He is making himself known through the church. So you and I have a responsibility to be these hands and feet and voice of reconciliation by being submitted to God, particularly with the question, how do we view people of different colors, of different races? I went into this in more detail. Uh, my story on a video that Jared posted earlier in the week on Facebook, I'll, I'll save you the time, but, but I was raised in an all-white community, all-white high school, all-white college. And so I went through life with stereotypes about people of color. And then seminary, I had a chance to listen to, for the first time to listen to brothers and sisters of color and hear their story. And say, God, forgive me for my stereotype. 
So as we seek to be God's vehicle of reconciliation in this culture, let me ask you, where are you in that process? Perhaps like me, you grew up in a community that was monolithic, didn't, didn't have a lot of people of color. And, and maybe like me, I, I had a father who was prejudiced. Uh, maybe you were influenced by people of prejudice. Would you bring that before the Lord? Would you make it your goal to, to meet somebody of color and just say, tell me your story. Let me hear from you what it's been like. As, as long as we're talking about the, the conflict that has gone on, I, I'd encourage you to do that with people in law enforcement. Some people get their view of law enforcement by what happened in Minneapolis. Listen, I know several police officers in this church and in the community, they're not about that. They don't want to be downtown protecting buildings. They're, they're there by duty. Would you get to know them? <laughs> that you understand that law enforcement is not like the guy up there. I believe if there's going to be change in our culture, it is going to come through the church, God working through his people. Are we willing to let the Spirit of God get in our business to get in where we have found life and identity and make change? See, maybe it's how we view people of color. Maybe it's how we view uh, people that are unborn. Maybe it's how we take care of the person that's marginalized at school. Maybe it's how we do or don't participate in entertainment. And it, at some point, that it brings us into conflict with others, with culture. And, and as God's child and his voice, it, it causes that. And, and Paul speaks to that in verses 16 and 17. He says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We are his representative. Children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed, catch this, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. I don't know where God's work in your life or in my life is going to take us. But if we're following Jesus at some point, it's going to bring us into conflict with culture just like Jesus had conflict with his culture. We'll suffer for this walk with God. But Paul says, he'll say it more in the next passage, the, the suffering is not even worthy to be considered with what we'll take. And he talks about us being heirs and taking hold of so much more when we meet Jesus face to face. But our experience of Christ relies, depends on our submission to his spirit the fullness of life depends on how we're submitted to him. Yeah, I'm not a big roller coaster guy. But occasionally I can get bullied onto it. That's what my younger says. You get bullied into something. But you know, the experience of a roller coaster really depends on submitting to a few safety rules. Like you gotta stay seated in the thing. If you stand up, you're probably gonna end up injured or dead. You gotta keep the safety bar down. And if you're just determined to throw off all restrictions, you're not gonna submit to anything, 
then you're going to miss out on the fullness of the experience of riding the roller coaster. In the same way, Jesus has a fullness of experience that he wants us to know and to live. But if we're going to do that, we're going to have to be submitted to him and his spirit. It's a choice we're going to have to willingly, intentionally make. Why would we do that? That we might be free from the tyranny of a self-directed life. Let me pray. Our God in heaven, um, the, what you teach sometimes is in, in conflict. It's, you're calling us to submit, to live in the spirit rather than to live in the flesh. And then it's, as Americans, the land of the free, that's really hard sometimes. So spirit, would you empower us? Would you convict us to live that way knowing as we live that way, we experience the fullness of the relationship that calls out Abba, Father. That we might know that intimacy through Jesus. And it's his name I pray. Amen.